brothers and sisters, it is important to have vision. Would you not agree? It's important to have vision. It's important to know what it looks like where I am headed, to know um, what, what it looks like where I am wanting uh, to go. Um, take a, a, a beautiful house, for example, um, a big, large, beautiful house with multi-rooms and a multi-urinal urinal facility and whatnot. That sort of, a, you know, you need a blueprint upon which to build that house. You need to have it clearly outlined for you what you're doing. And then based upon that blueprint, based upon that vision, you, you can begin to construct um, the house. Um, let's take a person, for example, you know, whether it be a man or a woman, um, a, a person who, you know, they, they look at themselves in the mirror and they're like, oh, something's got to change. And, um, you know, the reason why in their mind they think something has got to change is because there's a sense in which they have a vision for what they think they should look like. Um, and so such a person with a real clear sense of what I should look like, let's say, for example, this is a person that's just bigger than what they should be. Um, they, you know, they'll they'll oftentimes um, diet and exercise and, you know, and they know what they're doing. I've been amused with one of the guys on our pastoral staff, Brother Silos, Carlos Cuellar. Um, I can't tell you how many months ago it was, but he, you know, he, he was blessed by getting sick on one occasion and, he, and he, he threw up a lot of stuff. And in the process, he lost some weight and he decided, man, I lost a five. I think I'll go for broke. And all of a sudden, this guy, he's like counting, you know, numbers and just, just really, you know, um, he had a real sense of what he needed to do to get to where he was wanting to go. And if, if I wouldn't say so myself, I would, you know, he, he, he looks pretty good. He's lost a few pounds and he, was, he had a, a vision terms of where he was wanting to go. Um, you know, back in my younger days, I mean, I still have the vision, but it seems to be crumbling by the wayside now. But back in my younger days, I, I had a real clear sense of what I wanted my hair to look like. And those of you who knew me, you know, even as little as 10 years ago, you, you knew that, um, you know, I, I had a lot more to work with back then than I had now. And I would, you know, get up in the morning and take my shower and I would look in the mirror. And I mean, maybe that's why the Lord decided to take it from me. Spent a little bit too much time. But, you know, this idea of having vision, this idea of of knowing what it is you want something to look like, I submit to you is important. Not that I am proud of this, but back in my BC days in college when I was in a fraternity, and one of the things they make you do is they make you memorize stuff. And there was this quote that I memorized. Um, he who goes on a path not knowing where he is going, how will he know when he gets there? And part of the point of that was that you, you have to have a sense of where you're going. You have to have a sense of, of what it looks like that you are trying to accomplish. And so this morning, I want us to wrap our mind around the topic of the church. And I would like for us to, if you would, from the passage that we're going to look at, um, just lay hold of a vision, 
of what I believe God has for the church. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there to Acts 2.41. I would like to read the passage and then we will jump into the meat of the message. But let's read the passage. Acts chapter 2 verses 41 and following. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 41. So then... Those who had received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles and all of those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to ask you to pray with me, please. Lord, we have just taken the time to read your word, a passage from your word, which is living and active. Lord, as, as we consider this passage, I pray that you would illumine the eyes of our understanding and help us to behold wonderful things from your word. As we take a look at what was happening in here, the early church at its inception during the time of its infancy, and we discover some of the truths related to this early church, we we catch a a picture of what this early church was like. I pray, Lord, that you would use this to inspire us. I pray that you would uh, use this to give us a sense of vision. I, I pray that you would help us to understand what an effective church, in fact, looks like. And I pray, Lord, that we might receive from you whatever grace we need whether that be convicting, grace, comforting, encouraging, instructing, that, Lord, your grace in its various forms would reach down to us and that, Lord, as a result of having considered this passage, there would be a measure of transformation that takes place in us, not just individually, but corporately as a church. And I pray these things In Jesus' name, amen. This message is entitled, The Profile of a Thriving Church. The Profile of a Thriving Church. Um, Five descriptions of a spiritually healthy and thriving church. And, And really, we're taking a look at this church, which in its inception was doing remarkably 
well. I'm sure it was not perfect, but there's a lot to commend itself to this church. And, and the, the idea is that we would be instructed from this passage. Incidentally, especially for those of you who are visiting with us and maybe those of you who are newer to Cornerstone, this particular passage is an extremely important passage because much of what we are about um, has been inspired by things that we have in the past learned from this passage. And so in a sense, I'm not really saying a whole lot that is new. I'm just trying to stir our minds up by way of reminder. But for some of you who are newer, this might be true or or, um, it might be new to a degree. And so I just want to submit that to you. But anyway, um, a... The profile of a thriving church. Five descriptions of a spiritually healthy and thriving church. Number one, a thriving church is made up of saved people. Now, that might seem like a no brainer. And in a sense, it really is. But, you know, there are churches out there that are made up of unsaved people. Okay, there are so-called churches out there in which there are folks who really haven't repented of sin and believed in Christ and who have been born again. There's a lot of great churches out there. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of great churches out there, a lot of great men of God leading great churches. And we totally praise God and we, we rejoice because of that. But sad to say, on the flip side, there are those so-called churches in which the people in those churches do not constitute the church. Um, For example, I was raised in a particular church, and without necessarily naming the church, I was raised in a church that for all intents and purposes never proclaimed the gospel. And it was not until I became 21 years of age in which I heard for the first time the gospel in a setting outside of the church that I was raised in. And upon hearing the gospel, the eyes of my heart were illumined. My eyes were open. I saw, I understood, I embraced the truth. And on the other side of that, I experienced a transformation through the power of the gospel. And so you might say that it's a bit of a no-brainer, but in some sense it really isn't. Again, this point, a thriving church is made up of saved people. Look at the passage. It says in verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Now, the story is this. We have 120 followers of Jesus in the upper room. okay, and they were praying to God. And then the Bible tells us that the spirit of God fell upon these folks. And then they began to speak in foreign languages. They began to to speak the praises of God in these tongues. And as they were doing so, there were many people that began to gather around them and there was a large crowd. And then from within this this group of 120, there was one, the Apostle Peter himself, who stood up in the midst of the crowd and he began to proclaim the gospel. He began to explain to them who this Jesus was. And he made it very clear in no uncertain terms that this Jesus was the one whom you guys handed over to be crucified. You are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ, was the message of Peter. And he explained to them that this Jesus died on the cross and he was raised bodily from the dead. 
And as you read the account in Acts, you come to discover that they were totally cut to the quick. It says when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what did they do? They repented and we discovered then in verse 42, uh, in verse 41, that those who had received his word, the word of Peter, the gospel that Peter proclaimed, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls to be part of the church. You must repent of sin and believe in Jesus. You must, in fact, be born again. I want to ask you and I. I know that the the vast majority of you are born again. The vast majority of you, praise the Lord, have come to faith in Christ. You you have a relationship. You you have experienced a transformation through the power of the gospel. But I would also be inclined to think that there's got to be one or two or even more of you out there who are here this morning who have never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are Perhaps some of you out there, a young person, maybe an older person, I don't know. But there's got to be someone who has yet to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have yet to be born again. And the Bible says that unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And if you if you are that person and if you in your heart of hearts, you know that you are outside of a relationship with Christ, you know that you, though you are in this church, you are not actually part of the real church. If you know that's true about you, let me encourage you to repent of your sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear. Peter in his sermon made it clear that Jesus died on the cross for sinful man so that such a person could be saved. Okay, the Bible teaches that you have sinned against God, that you are separated from him because of your sin. But the Bible also teaches that God sent forth his son to die on a cross so that through his death, you might be forgiven for your sin. If you are here and you have yet to place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you. The Lord is speaking. The Lord is wanting you to know that you need to come to Him. Jesus, in His own ministry, spoke, Come to me. Come to me. All who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was Lost. He says, I came not for the healthy, for the sick. If you are one who would describe yourself as sick, one who would describe yourself as in need of a doctor, one who would describe yourself as sinful and separated from Christ, unrighteous, you qualify to enter into a relationship with Christ. And let me encourage you this morning to do so. And so the profile of a thriving church, the first point here is that a thriving church is made up of saved people. Number two, a thriving church is made up of saved people who are devoted to godly values. And we've got a list of four godly values, if you will, if you will 
that are presented to us in Acts 2.42. Okay? So these are our people who were saved. Okay? 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. They were saved. The Spirit of God indwelt them. They were new creatures. They were dead to sin. They were alive to God. Um, these were saved people. And on the other side of their salvation, on the other side of their embracing the gospel, they were a people who then were continually, you get the sense of all the time, devoting themselves, you get the sense of passionate about devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so a thriving church is made up of saved people who are devoted to these godly values. Let's look at this first one, the apostles' teaching. What was the core of the apostles' teaching? What was the very center point of their teaching? It was the gospel. It was the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles proclaimed. They went around all over the Roman Empire proclaiming that Jesus Christ died on the cross, according to the scriptures, it was predicted many times over in the past. It was foretold Jesus would die on the cross. He would be laid to rest in the tomb. The apostles would proclaim that he was raised bodily from the dead. He was raised from the dead. He ascended Onto the right hand of the Father. This is what we, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, believe. We believe that Jesus is in fact alive and well. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And there he lives from his throne on high to make intercession for you and I. He pleads our case before the Father. And the Bible teaches that he will come back again someday. And we as the church of the living God look forward to that day with much anticipation. We look forward to that day when Christ will return and he will reign on the face of planet Earth in his kingdom. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. But this is the very heart and soul of the message of the apostles. This is the apostolic teaching. And so they went around proclaiming the gospel and explaining how the gospel fleshes itself out in life. That was primarily what they were all about. And the early church was committed to the apostolic teaching. They were committed to the gospel and its implications for life. They were passionate about it. And for us as the church in our day and age, the teaching of the apostles became canonized for us in the form of the New Testament. We have the apostolic teaching preserved for us in these 27 New Testament books in which we have what the apostles had given to us in terms of gospel teaching and gospel application and the, the history of this, the early church. So they were committed to the apostles' teaching. In essence, they were lovers of God and his word. They valued what God had to say to them. And they were eager to hear and they were eager to apply what God had to say to them. Okay? 
One of the marks of a thriving church is that you've got saved people who are passionately committed to these godly values, one of which is the apostolic teaching. But then there's fellowship. There is fellowship. The word for fellowship is koinonia, and it basically speaks of a sharing. The people of the early church connected their lives with one another They shared their lives with one another. This is extremely important if we are to be a church that glorifies God. Extremely important if we are to be a people who experience God, experiences grace at work among us. Relationship is one of the keys to making that happen. The early church knew that and they were strongly committed to this thing called fellowship, their relationships with one another. And this is going to get illustrated in a few verses later, whereby you get the sense that they were gathering like all the time. Hospitality was being practiced. The doors of the believers were open to other believers. But they were committed to this concept of fellowship. They shared of their lives. They got together. They spent time together. Um, God's people have been given gifts by him, And in the early church, they sought to minister their gifts one to another. And the people of the early church, you know, an individual would know, I've got gifts given to me by God. He wants to use my gifts to minister to my brothers and sisters. But he also understood my brothers and sisters as well have gifts. And God wants to use their gifts for the purpose of ministering to me. And there's this mutual fellowship that is taking place in the lives of the early church as they are ministering their gifts and they are practicing the one another's. There are countless one another's in the New Testament in which, for example, we are told to love one another, to pray for one another, to comfort one another, to exhort, to admonish, to teach, and so on and so forth, to serve one another. Okay, And this is what the early church did as an aspect of their fellowship. They practiced uh, the one another's. Another thing that happened in the early church is that folks were willing to give not just of their gifts, not just in terms of practicing the one another's and giving of their time and whatnot, but they were willing to give of their resources. And we'll get into that a little more here in a bit. But, but, but suffice it to say... They were willing to give of their resources. You see, they were connected to the gospel. They understood that Jesus, though he were rich, yet for my sake he became poor, so that in him I might be made wealthy. And they applied that in the relationships to others. And there were those who had means, who were willing to sell assets and to give to those who had need, Because you know what? They loved one another and were concerned for one another. That's an aspect of fellowship. And so they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to communion. And so in fellowship, we're talking about our horizontal relationships with one another. But you know the basis for that relationship, the basis for the the horizontal relationships is communion. It's the Lord's table. Uh, The Lord's table is a reminder to us of what Christ did for us as we celebrated this morning. Just a wonderful opportunity this morning for us to uh, celebrate 
the Lord's table. And we, we uh, not literally, but in a spiritual sense, if you will, we, we partook of the Lord through faith. We, we, we bit our teeth into the gospel, if you will, through faith. We, we proclaimed the gospel in our communion with one another. And this vertical relationship with the Lord is the basis for our horizontal relationships. The early church was passionately committed to the celebration of the Lord's table. This was a special moment and they wanted frequently and regularly to be reminded of the gospel as it is proclaimed through the means of holy communion. Um, So they were committed to the Lord's table. And then we continue on towards the next point. Um, Committed to the Lord's table and then committed to prayer. Um, You get the sense that they prayed regularly, frequently. Um, They would go to the temple daily praying. They would pray um, with one another in the context of the households. And they were always about prayer. The 120 were praying and then the spirit of God fell upon them. And then 3000 added to the church. And here they are committed to prayer, being strong towards prayer, uh, uh, just experiencing, you know, this relationship to the Lord through prayer, just growing in their intimacy with the Lord through their prayer. These I have called um, I have called these four values. Right. These are the godly values that they were passionately committed to. And brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone, as you know, um, we want to take this seriously. When we gather together in our care groups, for example, we gather together for the purpose of practicing these values. There is tremendous value that we place upon these means of grace, if you will. We gather together in care groups, and what a blessing that, you know, we, we come together and we process the teaching of God's word as it has been presented from the pulpit Sunday to Sunday. And we take time and we interact around the word of God, the apostolic teaching. We gather together and we fellowship with one another. We seek to share our lives with one another. And, you know, granted, we, we haven't arrived, but we're seeking to grow. And Lord willing, that is our experience, is that we are growing together in fellowship with one another, being sanctified in the process of gathering together in this smaller uh, gathering that we here at Cornerstone call care group. But in the care group, too, we, we do communion. We did it here this morning, but here in our bigger setting, we practice communion once a month. But as a church, all of us really ought to be practicing communion on a weekly basis as we gather together in our care groups. That's one of the things that we do. We practice this, this beautiful ordinance of communion. And, and we, we reflect upon the precious death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give thanks. That's why in some circles they call it the Eucharist. Um, it means to give thanks. And, and we give thanks together in community. But at any rate, the, the early church was made up. A thriving church is made up of saved people who are committed to godly values and thereby experience, this moves us to the next, they experience God 
and his work. They experience God and his work. Take a look with me, please, at Acts 2.43 and following. You, you get the sense that there is a connection between their commitment to the values as just described, these four values. There's a connection between that and what we are about to read. There is a relationship here. Okay, I'm not going to go so far as to say that the one causes the other, but there is a connection that as they are committed to the values, um, almost simultaneously in connection and perhaps to some extent as a result of they are experiencing God. It says, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. The Greek word is uh, phobos, I think is how you say it from where we get the word phobia. Um, and, and really, if you take a look how Luke uses this word in other contexts, typically he uses it to speak of this trembling kind of a fear. And I think there is some sense of that here, that the early church experienced this trembling sense of a fear before a high and holy and absolutely perfect supreme God, the creator of the universe. There was this sense of, of fear, this sense of awe that they experienced. Remember Ananias? He lied. He was dropped dead in the presence of the church and they were filled with this same word, this fear. And then they took him out of, of the, the building and then his wife comes in not knowing what happened to her husband and they ask her so what, what's the deal what happened and she, she tells them what her husband said which basically was a lie she drops dead and there's this fear there's this sense of fear that gripped the church those who were there to observe and others who had basically heard about it there was a fear and I submit to you that there is something to be said about a healthy fear of the Lord. There, there ought to be times in which, in our experience of the presence of the Lord, there's a certain measure of shaking that happens. I understand the flip side. I understand, you know, John, the disciple, the apostle whom Jesus loved, he says, perfect love casts out all fear. And there's something to be said about that in which, you know what, as you are enveloped in the very grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sense of fear evaporates. But at the same time, part of the Christian experience is to experience these, these uh, range of emotion before the presence of a high and holy God. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and so this speaks of their experience of God. But they experienced not just God, but his work among them as well. Because listen to what it says. They, they had a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Wonders and signs designed to authenticate the veracity of what they were preaching, designed to, to lend support to the message that they were proclaiming. God performed miracles through the apostles to demonstrate to those who were there that what they were saying is in fact true and is of the Lord. And so they experienced the work of God taking place through the apostles. Verse 44, and here's more of the work of God. Not through the apostles per se, but through the church body as a whole. It says, and all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions 
and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Mercy ministry. Mercy ministry. The people of God, they look across the landscape of the church that they are a part of and they notice and they identify needs and there is something in their heart that wants to do something about the needs that they see. They pray about the needs of others if they have the resources and as the Lord leads, they are willing to give of what they have in order to help those who have legitimate need. Um, This is just part of what it means to be a part of a thriving church. This is a mark of a church that is thriving. Show me a church where there is no concern for mercy ministry. And I will show you a church that is in need of gospel growth. I think the gospel and the demonstration of mercy go hand in glove. And as the gospel has an effect in the people of God, it's in their heart to want to reach out and to meet needs, to pray for one another, um, to open the door of their home, to have people stay at their home if necessary, to give to them a meal, to open up their pocketbooks and give them a few extra dollars if they are in need. This is just this is this is the overflow of the experience of the gospel that I submit to you that this church was having. Okay, so we continue on. We move on to the next point. Number four. A thriving church is made up of saved people who are devoted to godly values and thereby experience God and his work as they gather together with one another. As they gather together with one another. Now listen to what it says uh, Beginning in verse 46 then. And day by day, day by day, you get the sense here of every day, continuing with one mind. There's a sense of unity that the people of God were experiencing. That unity was based upon the foundation of the gospel itself. They were a unified people, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house in the larger setting and in the house-to-house setting, in the smaller setting. They were experiencing fellowship with one another. They were committed to the values here within the context of a larger setting and a smaller setting. They were fellowshipping with one another. It says they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. There was hospitality that was being exercised in this church, in this thriving church. Um, The doors were being opened for others to come into their homes and to share meals together and to fellowship together. And uh, you get the sense that they did this gladly. But please please notice, it says that that they were doing this every day, right? Uh, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and Breaking bread from house to house. So both in the temple and house to house. Now, did they meet in the temple every single day? Did they meet in the larger setting every single day? I really don't know, to be honest. Did they meet in households every single day? I'm not sure of that as well. But what I can, I think, safely say is that whether it was in the temple and or 
in the households, they were meeting daily. They were meeting daily. This is an illustration, I think, of the fellowship that in verse 42 we are told they were committed to. They got together. Brothers and sisters, I would, I would you know, exhort myself with the same type of a question. So I'm in the mix here. But the question is, how, how well are we doing as it relates to this matter of fellowshipping regularly? Even on a daily basis. Now, I'm not wanting to say, oh, you have to get together with someone every single day. But it may be true that for some of us, we need to get together more than we do. We need to open up the doors of our home more than we have. We need to begin to arrange our lives in such a way that there's a simplicity there to where we're able to have connection with people. This is, this is what the people of God do. And it's within this sort of an environment that the glory of God is able to, to reveal itself within the context of the relationships that we do have with one another. Let's move on then to the fifth and final point. A thriving church is made up of saved people who are devoted to godly values and thereby experience God and his work as they gather together with one another and as they reach out to a lost and dying world. Now in verse 47, we come full circle, do we not? In verse 47, we, we continue on, in a sense, with how we began. We began by learning that the Lord added 3,000 souls to the church. And we end this section of scripture by reading this in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all of the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this is really, in large measure, what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the acts of God the Spirit as he sweeps through the landscape of humanity and builds his church. And this is what we catch a glimpse of here as we take a look at this thriving church. This, at this point of its history, this healthy church. This is a church that was advancing the cause of Christ. This is a church that was making a difference. There were folks who were saved from wretched backgrounds. There were folks who were saved from not so wretched backgrounds. There were folks, no doubt, who were saved um, uh, from a life of just total debauchery and sin and immorality and there were others who, for all intents and purposes, may have been good boys and good girls by the world's standards. But nevertheless, they needed Christ and they needed to be saved from their sin. There were those who were wealthy and there were those who were poor. Uh, there were those from all ethnicities, all walks of life. And folks were getting saved and they were one people. And God was being glorified and the gospel was spreading like wildfire. And so we have developed a vision for a thriving church. Now, this is not complete, but it helps us in the developing of a vision. It helps us with this blueprint, if you will. A thriving church is made up of saved people. A thriving church 
is devoted to godly values. A thriving church experiences God. A thriving church experiences the work of God. A thriving church gathers together in larger and even smaller settings, worshiping God together with gladness. They are happy to do so and sincerity or simplicity of heart. And a thriving church reaches out to the unsaved. This is the profile of this particular church that I submit to you was, was thriving. One of the things that I thought about over the last week is I, I began to reflect upon our mission statement here at Cornerstone. And many of you have the mission statement memorized. For some of you, maybe you've never seen it before. But as I thought through the mission statement, I thought, you know what? I could imagine that, you know, the leadership of this church, the, the apostle, I, I could imagine them coming up with a statement like the one we have here at Cornerstone. You consider the aspects of our mission statement and all of these things were true in reference to this church. And God help us as a church to fulfill the mission of this church, right? We exist. Our purpose is to glorify God by experiencing the gospel in all of its fullness, gospel centrality, wrapping our minds around the truth of the gospel and being transformed through the power of the gospel. We exist to glorify God by experiencing the gospel in all of its fullness, exalting the Lord through worship, edifying the saints, one another, through mutual ministry and evangelizing the world. Through outreach. This is our mission that has been presented to us a few years ago by our head pastor, Milton Vincent. And I would submit that to you as something to keep before us as we continue this year in our ministries, as we do care group together in Sunday school and men's ministry and women's ministry and all of the ministries, Awana ministry and whatnot, as we do family worship together. Let it be that we keep focused on this mission. And that we seek to fulfill the mission of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. I'd like to ask you to pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we thank you for your word. There is much that could be said, much that was not said. And with the little that has been said, I pray that you would attach these truths to our hearts. You would give to us a vision for the type of church you would want us to be. And you would help us as one body, Lord, to be that body in which you, by your spirit, dwell and you glorify yourself in our midst. Help us, Lord, to realize um, the mission of Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. Help us to be like this church that we looked at here this morning in Acts chapter 2, to be a thriving church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.